Welcome to Top Dogs. I'm Mike Merrill. I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Camilla Nielsen, the director of President. Let's hear what Camilla has to say about her film. Zimbabwe is at a crossroad. And in the first election since the removal of dictator Robert Mugabe, young opposition leader Nelson Chamisa is up against old guard crocodile Emerson Munangagwa. I found this movie very compelling. I, I think we really get that backroom feeling. You know, I think a little bit of American films like The War Room, which is about the crew that elected Bill Clinton. But the stakes here are so much higher. The threats are so much more explicit. I have to say that I am a fan of the sort of subgenre of presidential election documentaries. And I have to put this one up at the very top. I think the cinema verite approach that Camilla took with her very small crew, you really are a fly on the wall in these amazingly telling scenes where you get to see strategy happening behind the scenes. And also just the urgency of the film. There's so much at stake for the country and for, the, for these characters. You don't know what's gonna come out the other side. On the upside, these guys could be elected and take over the country. On the downside, their lives might be in danger. So there's so much at risk for them and then for the country as a whole. You really feel the disappointment of the Zimbabweans. I have to say though, I began to recognize that some of what I was feeling was potentially anticipatory grief for America. I think we, when we used to watch these films of other countries, we'd say, oh, wow, so terrible what's happening there. Too bad they don't have real democracy. And I think uh, it's hard for me not to think that we may be experiencing something very similar in a few years from now. Absolutely. I felt the same sense of dread. And it really was so, unfortunately, so simple the way the ruling government stole the election. And I just was hoping to God that Donald Trump wasn't watching this movie. I want to share a quick anecdote, which is that I interviewed Camilla and Dr. Sabanda, who is the spokesperson for the presidential candidate, Nelson Chamisa, who's at the center of this film. He said something really amazing, which was he actually quoted Ted Kennedy's concession speech at the 1980 Democratic Convention. And it just blew me away that these guys pay so much attention to the American political system, and they take from it and they learn from it. By the way, is just that's where that speech at the end, the hope, hope, hope speech. I believe they that probably was inspired by Ted Kennedy's speech. President premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2021, where it received the jury award for Verite filmmaking. It's been nominated for a Gotham Independent Film Award for Best Documentary Feature and has been named to the IDA Documentary Awards 2021 Features Shortlist. So it's very much a part of the conversation for awards for this year. It's also kind of a sequel to Camilla's 2014 documentary, Democrats, about Zimbabwe's power struggle for a new constitution. Democrats really was her breakthrough film. It was winner of numerous international prizes, including the Jury Award for Best Documentary Feature at the 2015 Tribeca Film Festival and numerous awards at CPH Docs. Nielsen has also directed a trilogy about children's rights, Good Morning Afghanistan, Durga, and the Children of Darfur. She's also directed a documentary, Mumbai Disconnected with Frederick 
Jacoby. Camilla was born and lives in Copenhagen. She graduated from the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU and also holds a master's in visual anthropology from NYU. If you like this conversation, follow us, like the episode, rate us, even share us on social media. Coming up is our conversation with Camilla Nielsen about her film, President. Camilla, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Mike and Ken. Camilla, congratulations on President, which is a truly incredible film. Thanks. We like to ask, why do you make documentary films? Yeah, that's a big, big, big question. I think the short answer is because I, I cannot not do it. I make difficult films, not necessarily very commercial films, and uh, in places that not many people from where I come from care about very much. So you could ask yourself, you know, why? But I think I just can't, I cannot not do it. My background is that I studied anthropology. And I felt academia was basically, for me, very much communicating with people who were agreeing with you, or at least the distance between the two positions you would have were so minor that anyone outside academia wouldn't know the difference. And I'm an activist, and I'm very politically engaged. For me, I felt I had to find another place to tell my stories or to sort of to operate. And it became documentary filmmaking. And today, I, I, I can't think of doing anything other than that. Camilla, your previous film about Zimbabwe politics, Democrats, which mm. came out in 2014, followed the process as Zimbabwe was writing the country's first democratic constitution. You were given unprecedented, incredible access. In President, you were again given amazing access, this time by the leading opposition party, the MDC Alliance. At what point did you begin making president? The idea to make president was not mine. Uh, actually, Democrats took three years to film and two years to edit. When we were ready to release it in Zimbabwe, and then President Robert Mugabe banned the film, or his censorship board banned the film, but his daughter was you know, the core member. Uh, it was banned as not suitable for showing to the public which is a banning degree that you usually give to films of pornographic nature. We challenged that ban uh, in the Zimbabwean court system. And three years after the, the making of the movie, we won that court case in the Zimbabwean high court. I flew back to Harare to represent my case in the hearing. And uh, since we won, we actually went out for a small celebration dinner after the, the court hearing. That's when the idea came up for me to come back and, and make a new film in Zimbabwe. Some of the protagonists from Democrats who were at the dinner were sort of regrettably talking about the, the process about Democrats, how it had not been released and how difficult it had been to make. During the Mugabe days, he was not super press friendly. So they, they felt that there was a new democratic space that had opened up after the fall of Mugabe and that this would be the first hopefully free and fair election since independence. And it would be important to have that documented. That's how President came about, almost like a... You can see a sequel to Democrats. Democrats didn't have a happy end, uh, and we were all devastated by that. And I think the protagonist of Democrats felt that now was the time to do a positive story from Zimbabwe. I agreed, and, and that's how that idea to make president came about. Watching the film, what struck me is that the nature of the power from the autocratic president is less than total. Your film was banned, and then somehow the court said, well, let's unban it after years later. There's a scene in this film where after the election, there's an attempt to have a press conference by Jamisa 
the police come and try to break it up. And then the justice minister shows up and says, no, you can have it. I think in, in that scene or that event, that, that Chamisa's press conference, uh, and also I should say in front of the entire world press being present, it wasn't just a few crews. Everybody was there. There were 200 media people and they broke up the press conference with riot police in front of rolling cameras. I think the regime realized very shortly after that was perhaps not a good idea. Power was taken through a military coup by uh, Mugabe's former henchman who didn't have a very good record being a Democrat. And at that point, he was really trying to sell Zimbabwe as a new democracy. He also needed a free and fair and clear election to sort of legitimate his power as president. And that idea of sending 100 riot-clad police after the free press in the middle of a presidential election with observer teams and everybody there was perhaps not the smartest thinking out of the government building. And so I think crazy, absurd scene is a very interesting example of when you have a, a party like SANU-PF, Mugabe's uh, party and the ruling party in Zimbabwe today, that there can be both progressives and people who want to hang on to the status quo. And I think after the military coup, there were clear fractions within SANU-PF. Somebody wanted to take a more progressive approach to governing and some were stuck in the past. And I think that's what crystallized in that scene. You might remember that the next scene is actually the entire world press being invited to the state house for an apology about what happened. Shortly after Munangagwa, the, the, the sitting president, gave a speech where he was talking in a very high-pitched tone about the flowering democracy that we had seen in, in Zimbabwe during the election. That was on the same day. And I was rather surprised, actually, how the Munangagwa could sit with that stone face and talk about the flowering democracy uh, that was happening all around us, surrounded by press people who were completely shaken by being chased around a press conference by riot-clad police. And I think that's still the case in Zimbabwe. Currently, as we speak, there are a lot of progressives within the ruling party who would like to see change happen. And then there are, unfortunately, the people who hold real power who are clinging onto it and wants to preserve the, the status quo. Can you just give us a quick rundown on the state of Zimbabwe politics, starting with the coup that removed Mugabe from office? Sure. Um, well, Zimbabwe became independent in 1980 after having been a former British colony known as Rhodesia. He ruled the country with an iron grip, I think it's safe to say, from 1980 until he was ousted in a military coup in, in November 2017. Mugabe was 90 years old mid to late 90s at that point, wasn't really functioning, I dare say, as an operating president. He fell asleep often in meetings. The year before he was ousted, when he opened parliament, he read a speech that was from last year. He went through it for 40 minutes. He didn't even realize. So he was too old to say it in a diplomatic way to rule Zimbabwe at that point. And I think people from within his party agreed to that. And Emerson Munangagwa, who was the coup maker and who took power after Mugabe, had been uh, in Zimbabwean politics and, and struggled in the War of Liberation, was a, a liberation war hero with Mugabe. He has sort of been his right-hand man for 38 years and I think had been hoping for all this time to come president one day. And when Mugabe was wearing off and it was time for him to retire, he was starting to promote his wife, Grace Mugabe, to become the next president of Zimbabwe. And I don't think that sat well with SANU-PF, the ruling party, in a political power conflict between Grace Mugabe and Emerson Munangagwa. Munangagwa was fired. His life was threatened. He fled the country. 
made an alliance with the military generals and came back and removed Mugabe. It was a very bloodless coup, you can say. It was a negotiated coup. There were a few people, guards and, and so forth, that was killed. But I think at that time, everybody was just really relieved to see Mugabe go and were putting all their hopes into the idea that even if he had a really bad record as a Democrat, perhaps Murangagwa would have been under the influence of Mugabe's strict rule and was perhaps more progressive than had come across in his 38 years in politics. And then the presidential election that was going to, to be held, correct? The coup was in November, and you don't legitimize yourself by taking power through a military coup. So it was needed to have a presidential election shortly after that could sort of manifest and legitimize Emerson Munangakwa as the legitimate president of Zimbabwe. And our, just to go back to the banning case of, of my first film, Democrats, we had been in a legal battle for about three years when the ban was lifted. It was in February 18. And at that time, I believe that the regime was very busy to create a kind of democratic veneer. And I do think in retrospective that our film, the ban was unlifted to create a facade of, you know, times have changed. I think Munangagwa did a, a really stellar job as representing himself as a born-again Democrat, although his record would say the opposite. The opposition party, MDC Alliance, had a different candidate at the start of the campaign. He dies of cancer, and then Nelson Chamisa becomes the standard bearer. What were your first impressions of Nelson Chamisa? He was the youth leader of the MDC Alliance uh, since the party's inception. So although he wasn't physically part of the constitution-making process that I filmed in, in Democrats, I, I knew of him and we'd met each other at the opposition headquarter and at, at various events. My impression was that he was a very young and very ambitious politician, was very close to Changarai. I, I saw him as a crown prince to take over one day. The first meeting I had with Chamisa was five minutes long. I, I, was, I, I hope we had a long cameraless encounter where we would discuss the ideas of how I wanted to make this film. But basically, he just said, look, I saw Democrats six times. I loved it. And I would be very happy for you to tell my story. We went through the technicalities, which is, of course, that I, I like the people I filmed to wear radio mics. And, and that's a problem in a dictatorship. Radio mics is something you put on molds and it's associated with the system. I, I made clear that I work observationally and you might think it's a good idea today, but I promise you in four weeks, you're going to wish me far away because it's a big thing to have a camera crew around you so intensely, especially in a period of time where you are under so much pressure being the, the opposition candidate. But he was very open to it and very cool with everything I, I proposed. And so my, my first impression was that this was going to be an easy film to make and that he was, and he still is, very collaborative and very open and, and allowed a great deal of transparency, I think, in a very difficult situation. And that's still my impression today. I don't know how he gets his energy. He sends me messages at 4 a.m. in the morning and then the next one, three hours later, he, he never sleeps. He's a really driven uh, young politician and he carries a lot of hope for a, a young Zimbabwean generation who wants to see change. There's certainly overlap between journalism and documentary filmmaking, but there are also different processes and different relationships between subjects and the media in those situations. Can you talk about your position as a independent documentary film crew with this incredible access to the MDC and how that shaped the way the film was made. 
We're a very small crew. I work with cinematographer Henry Ibsen on both Zimbabwe films, and I boom my own. I, mean, I do sound work myself, so we try to limit the presence of our crew to just two people when we film. And that's because we are often filming very uh, sensitive negotiations or political situations where I think any kind of intrusion is difficult. I doubt that the Danish prime minister or any Danish ministers would have that kind of openness and transparency if I asked to do a similar film here in Denmark, where I'm from. One of the, 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 the ways that we come about this kind of intrusive style of filmmaking, which observational filmmaking is, because you're there all the time and you film everything and, and you're sort of omnipresent, is that we are only two people and we have worked with the Zimbabwean opposition for such a long time that there is a great level of, of trust Of course, around the crew, which is Henrik Ibsen and, and I, there's a whole network that helps us facilitate the movie making. And that's mainly in the connection to the fact that we are filming in a dictatorship where our disc can be taken, our you know car can be confiscated. There's a lot of obstacles in terms of working in that way. And I lean a lot on the protagonist of the film, of the people we film, because of course they're much better navigators in this kind of environment. How were you perceived differently within the country, whether by the regime or others, as this kind of strange oh. oddity, which is a two-person crew who's <laughs> often disappearing into these rooms with the opposition candidate versus their impression of the normal international media covering a campaign. The regime obviously would rather that we not be there. We feel the the harassment. We, if there's a press conference, for instance, the one that you mentioned before, Mike, uh, at the hotel where riot police came, we can operate freely there. We are sort of on home ground. The the following press conference at State House, I only found out happened because a, call, a, a Zimbabwean local journalist told me, hey, Let's go to the state house. There's another thing happening there. The Ministry of Information will not take our names and put them on the journalist list so that we are informed, for instance, during an election when things are happening. If I try to get into filming a government ruling party event, my gear will be checked three extra times if I'm even informed that it takes place. And I do feel the strain of having made Democrats and having been in a long legal process in terms of Sanopiev and, and the ruling party. That's for sure. It was more difficult to make president than Democrats because they knew my history and kept the pressure on us as a team. In terms of the opposition itself, obviously they don't see us as journalists. And I think that's also part of my methodology when I work. I, I don't work as a journalist. I, I don't do interviews. I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to create a story that's going to splash and make headlines. Basically, I, I tell them it's going to be a long process to film and put the film together. You just need to trust me. That means that we are not considered journalists. We're seen as filmmakers telling their story in an environment where they are not able to do it themselves because of the risks that we've been talking about, the security risks and the fact that opposition journalists or dissenting voices or local filmmakers or even people who you, you know make theater are picked up at night and disappear and, and never come back. So I think there's a, between us and, and the people we film, there is a, a feeling of solidarity. Chamisa once said to me when we were discussing my role as a foreigner that he felt kind of guilty that he would use me to tell his story. And I said, you don't have to worry about that because in the end I have final cut and I, I will tell my story. We are able to tell the story about the stolen election 
and they feel that the story about the stolen election is not sensationalized as journalistic news, that we'll get the story and that we're in it for the long haul. Look at the footage that in the middle of the events, during the week around the election day itself, every press conference we film, there are about 200 microphones piled up on the table and the entire world press is there. And when the ruling has come from the Constitutional Court about who won the election, which for me is the main question, we are the only crew there, basically, to tell that story. Everybody else has left. So I think the premise of, of documentary filmmaking compared to, to journalism is that we have the luxury of taking the time it takes to tell the full complexities of the story. And, and there's a feeling from our protagonists that they can trust us and that we are in it for the long haul. I think it was really interesting how sometimes Chamisa speaks pretty much solely in English. Other times, maybe in more rural areas, it seemed like maybe he spoke in the African language more. He mixes and matches pieces and phrases. And even when he's speaking mainly in the African language, it seemed like certain words were in English, criminal, corruption, constitution, uh, which I think are an interesting uh, trio of words. What is the language we're hearing? And do you know why he's choosing particular languages in particular places? Well, Shona is the main local dialect in Zimbabwe. And there's a second dialect called Ndebile, spoken by a, a minority tribe. But English was installed as the official language in the colonial times. In linguistics, you call it code shifting, how you can fluently operate between the two languages. Everybody speaks at least two languages in Zimbabwe. Sometimes you have better words in English to explain something. And sometimes you have a better word in Shona. And they've fluidly managed to shift between those two languages. Another thing that I noticed that as a filmmaker is that when things get difficult or sensitive, there's a tendency to switch to Shona in times of conflict. It's interesting that you notice it because for me as a filmmaker, I don't speak Shona. I understand quite a bit by now, but I, I don't speak it. Uh, it's a very difficult, very beautiful, but very difficult language for me to, to learn. But the fact that there are references to English and some English spoken in meetings means that I can somehow orient myself and have a, an understanding of what's been spoken about, even when it's mainly Shona that is, is, is spoken. Early on in the film, we see news footage of Chamisa from 2007. He's lying prone on a bed. His head's bandaged. His skull has been fractured from a beating he took for his opposition to the regime. And he says he's willing to, to die for the cause. This really seems to me to sort of set up your film, President, as a kind of hero's journey. We're with this guy. He has sacrificed. He has almost died. And he's willing to go all the way. So from this point on, I feel like we are on this hero's journey. Can you talk about how much that idea shaped the way you made the film. It's interesting that you mentioned that clip because initially I didn't want, you know, I use archive footage because I, I tell stories where you need to have some kind of context or background. Uh, not everybody is on par with Zimbabwean politics. I, I need to sort of set things in, in a context. Chamisa's situation was he was a 41-year-old young unproven Democrat and nobody, unless you knew in depth about Zimbabwean opposition politics, you wouldn't know that he actually joined the party in, in 99 and was the, one of the founding members and from a very young age was part of opposition politics in Zimbabwe. Sometimes because he's so well-spoken and well-dressed and a very jabber guy, he could come across uh, as someone as a more of the classical 
cliche about a politician than how I really saw him. What I experienced when I was traveling with Chamisa on his campaign trail was that he has so much respect and so much street credit and so much, especially with, with the younger generation of voters, they knew who he was and, and, and he was such a hero to them. I thought it was important for people to understand a little bit about why he was that hero. I, there's a scene in the film where we are meeting a group of students where he's taking input to his campaign and exchange ideas with a bunch of student leaders. And there's a young guy who stands up and say, Mr. Chemisa, you are the hope for Zimbabwe. If you didn't know the backstory about Chemisa and showed that he had really been in the front line taking his beatings, he didn't just come around the corner taking power from Changarai. He sort of paid his dues in opposition politics. You might not connect to him uh, as a character as, as deeply as I wanted to. That's why we, we included that clip. But also, I think, because it's very dangerous to be an opposition politician, especially leader of the opposition in, in Zimbabwe. It's not more than three weeks ago, his car was shot at and he was nearly killed in a, I don't know what number assassination attempt on his life, but it, it happens regularly that, that they are trying to kill him. If you're going to vote for someone to go up against Sanu PF, we need to know that you have the guts and the heart to, to do it. It's not for whims, let me say it that way. Zimbabwean politics is, is not for the faint-hearted. I think if you just read Chamisa as a young, beautiful, very well-dressed guy, people might think, what's his history to have a position like the one that he had running as, as a presidential candidate for the opposition? We really see him grow throughout the course of the campaign and throughout the course of your film. You mentioned that scene with the young people. That was a very striking scene to me because you see him listen. And I think seeing a politician who is so genuinely interested in what the people he's going to represent, if he is elected, have to say, speaks a lot to his character. What are some of the other ways that you saw him grow over the course of the campaign? And how did you use those to build scenes throughout the film? I think what you're saying about him being a good listener is very true. I think one of the things that we don't understand as an international audience is that a lot of what Chamisa does very, very well is that almost like a, in a Bill Clinton kind of way, the way he connects with people is extraordinary. He speaks what is called deep shona. He almost raps when he's at these rallies. He speaks with the use of a lot of metaphors. He talks in a language that everybody can understand, and he does it with great humor. It's, it's dangerous even to support and acknowledge that you support an opposition candidate in Zimbabwe. And you may have to walk 10 kilometers to a football stadium, living a life where you needed those hours to actually produce food for the dinner table in the evening. So it, it comes at great cost to join these rallies for the average Zimbabwean. And I think what Chamisa does and what I increasingly understood following him on the, the campaign trail was his brilliance at communicating in that way. When we arrived at the stadium or in a field or in the middle of nowhere, sometimes under a tree where he would be addressing potential um, voters and, and supporters of the opposition, people would be freezing or mm, feeling uncomfortable and you wouldn't see very many smiles. And when he left the venue, I felt that people were given a sense of hope that there was possibility for change uh, in him. The fact that he could keep turning people around the way he did and keep the project going with no funding, basically, to run the campaign and the resilience. And I know I sound perhaps like a propaganda machine. I'm really sorry. <laughs> you mentioned the hero story. It's, it was not my intention to make 
a hero film. I actually don't like heroes and, and villains in movies at all. If you think about Democrats, there would have been an obvious hero, which would have been the opposition candidate, Douglas Monsoro, and an obvious villain, which would have been the chief negotiator from Mugabe. But I think actually the, the greatest achievement with that film was to show that there are no villains and heroes in this game. Even Paul Maguana, who represented Sanopf, is a person who is stuck in a system. And I didn't want to villainize him or make Monsora more a hero than he was in real life. But it was hard with Chamisa because it was a very, very clear David Goliath story. Him being up against Emerson Munangagwa and the Electoral Commission and the police and the military. And so I'm filming scenes with him all the time where he's facing resistance. He doesn't raise his temper too much. He's a good diplomat. It was difficult not to show him uh, as a hero in this current story, which was the presidential election in, in, in 2018. If I make another film about him, we've actually talked about if he runs for president in, in 23, it would be interesting to tag along and I'll try to have a, a more critical gaze. He also grows into the role at a, just an, an exponential rate, it seems. A lot of scenes take place in cars where, you know, he's being driven from one location to another. And there's an extraordinary scene where we've just seen the most massive, enthusiastic rally to date. He's back in the car, he's being driven away. And it seems to dawn on him in that moment, this is happening. There's a real movement here. I think you see that it's perhaps a bit overwhelming for him. And I couldn't help but be reminded of D.A. Pennebaker's Don't Look Back with Bob Dylan and that moment where Dylan is riding away in a car and the fans are going crazy and you see the close-up of Dylan. And it's that moment where he realizes this is what fame is and my life is going to be changed forever. I think, it, you know, what Chamisa felt in the car after that rally was a different emotion than Dylan felt. He's so focused on, on running his campaign and become president. But I think there's also the realization in that moment that if I do become president, the responsibility is on me. I think he sort of realizes that this could happen very shortly. And I will be in charge of trying to fix the, the Zimbabwean situation. The mess Mugabe left, so to speak, is not going to be an easy fix. We're talking about an unemployment rate of 90%, a collapsed healthcare system, collapsed infrastructure, and I think 40 or 50% of the people relying on international food aid. Well, the country has the possibility of lifting itself quite quickly because there's a lot of natural resources underground in Zimbabwe. There's 60 minerals, diamonds, gold, all sorts of things that could, if it was not handled in a corrupt way, could really bring the country back to its feet. And I think that's what was the weight on his shoulder when he had moments of introspection. And I could see that he felt it was all a bit too much. It was not so much about the fame or becoming president or, you know, he's a very low-key guy. My feeling is that he's going to, you know, uh, play it as, as he does today. I think what was daunting on him in, in that moment was the realization that come Monday and I'm giving the keys to the government, I'm in charge to fix this. For me, the most fascinating scenes in the movie are those that do take place with just the core political team meeting and you're there in the room. I think one of the first times we have such a scene is after the Zimbabwe Election Commission starts printing up ballots without the opposition party's involvement and Shamis is meeting with his inner circle. They're trying to figure out what to do. In that moment, you see 
his other skills, which is probably more his lawyerly skills. He has great precision with language. He's standing there writing, editing that press release that they're going to read. What can you tell us about some of those privileged moments where it was just you in the room? Because it's also dawning on me, the international press isn't in this room, so no one else is seeing what we're seeing. I, again, I think that the fact that we are there and keep rolling, my DP and I, in those moments is because we've been filming there since 2011 for, for 10 years. The reception of Democrats in Zimbabwe was, it, it was a very well-liked film. And, and there was a lot of trust that we built on. That scene that you mentioned, basically from the Ministry of Information gave us the filming permit and we started rolling. It was like the gap between making Democrats and president had never happened. We're just there. Nobody really notices us. us we can move around the room and, and, and do our filming. It's a cliche to say that you're part of the furniture when you're an observational filmmaker. I know that's, of course, not the case, but I think that there is just enough trust. We have a job to do, and Chamisa has to write a press statement, and so he has a job to do, and we just do our own thing. I don't discuss what I film and how I film it or, or anything with Chamisa or any of the other protagonists in the film. And they don't see what we film until I show them the, the final version or an almost final version. And then we have a debate about are there issues in terms of security or are there you know, things that can put anybody at risk that we have overseen. But otherwise, I think working in this close and very trusted bubble with the Zimbabwean opposition for this long means that we just roll and they write their press statement and 20 minutes later, we have a scene. You did mention that with Democrats, you avoided the trope of villains, but it's unavoidable that here we have two pretty strong villains, President Manangagwa and Justice Priscilla Chigumba, who is named the head of the Zimbabwe Election Commission by the president. I presume you didn't have much access to either of those two. How did you think of framing them as characters in the film? I'd like to add that when we embarked on making president, we did approach Emerson Munangakwa and invited him to be part of the film. Just both the opposition and the ruling party were part of Democrats. I thought it would have been the best way to make this film with both positioned present. Uh, and we did get quite far in terms of access it's a long story, but in the end, Monangakwa's team decided for us not to, to film with him. Priscilla Chigumba, the head of the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, didn't want to speak to anybody, not just me or Chamisa. But the, the main problem in terms of access to her was that she did not want to meet Chamisa at any cost. And being associated with Chamisa, we became part of somebody that she didn't want to meet with. There's, there were various press conferences that she gave during the election period where I think we were deliberately removed off the list or we're not giving information about things that were open to public press or to, to anybody with a, with, a, with a press card. And it's true, I don't like to create these sort of dichotomies between the, the villains and, and heroes in the classical sense of using that dramaturgically, because I think it's very simplified and often unfair characterizations of people who are always much more complex than a 90-minute or two-hour movie allows you to show. I think in terms of both Emerson Munangakwa and, and Priscilla, there was no footage of them that we filmed that showed them in a likable way. I'm really sorry to say. We did try, uh, and, and also to give Priscilla Chigumba a fair chance, because her position as a head of the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, I would say, is one of the positions, yes, she took the job, but did she know what it entailed when she took it? 
I think at some point when you deals with the devil uh, the way that she did, you become part of a system. And even if you might be a very good person and have had sincere ideals about creating a, a free and fair election in Zimbabwe, but very quickly you are entangled in a whole system with a different agenda. And I don't know how much maneuver space she had to do something different than what she did unless she wanted to have risked her life. We are not villainizing her on purpose in the film, on the contrary, but it was very difficult because she was dishonest and she didn't want to take a meeting with the opposition. She did go ahead and print 100% extra ballots and broke all sort of basic elementary rules in terms of having a free and fair election. There was no voters role. I mean, it was very criticizable how she ran that election and something that's also been criticized in several post-election observer reports. And for Edi Mrangakwa, like I said, I approached him with an open heart in the beginning and had, had hoped that he would be part of, of this story. But it, how, however we filmed him, I didn't find so much likable about him. There's a stunning thing where in the press conference, he has right after the broken up press conference, and I believe after army has actually shot six people he says and the press is taking pictures and he says lots of shots all blanks yeah and it seems like is that just a brutal joke what is the point i think it's a very good example of dictator humor it was so tone deaf in my perspective to the day before having shot six people and wounded many more in cold blood on the streets of Harare in the middle of an election process and then rock up to the first press conference after being the president-elect and like you said says when the cameras are flashing to say all these shots but blanks I thought I heard it when he said it but then I thought that's impossible he, he didn't just say that in front of rolling cameras but he did and back to your question Ken about villains and, and, and non-villains you couldn't have scripted a better villain bit of dialogue if that was your intention if you were a fiction filmmaker i don't know what to do honestly in the case of him as a character and then he continued by the way at the press conference to give a speech about the flowering festival of democratic freedoms when i see that at screenings it's interesting to see audience reactions there's a very nervous laughter in that scene it's so absurd that audiences don't know what to do with it it feels so evil to crack that kind of a joke and then just gaslight what just happened in front of everybody's eyes. Two days before the election, you follow Chamisa to what turns out to be a huge rally. And you seem to shoot that in a different way. You're high up, you're riding in a vehicle, and it's, a, it's thrilling. And it also changes the audience's relationship, I think, to the events. We're not just observing the Chamisa phenomenon we are a part of it in that moment. Talk about shooting that scene and about that day. It was the final rally in the capital Harare before election day. Basically, the opposition had realized that this was not a level playing ground to go into the election, but they had no choice. It was too late to pull out. And so their tactic was to say to everybody, just come on Saturday and we'll overwhelm them. And of course, those numbers at the rallies was going to be represented also in, in the number of votes on the voting day. I don't know to this date exactly how many hundreds of thousands of people there were based at that square. But when we, we were in the car, we were in the car right behind uh, Chimisa. I like you say that it's filmed differently. That's actually rather coincidence because the production car we had that day had a sunroof a big sunroof. So my TP had an opportunity of, of sticking his head and the camera out and, and film it that way, which made for a very uh, beautiful shot. But I, I remember sitting in the back seat and feeling the energy from the crowds as so massive and overwhelming. According to uh, drone shots, 
there were more people gathered on African Union Square, as the place is called, on that day than they were gathered the day Zimbabwe became independent. And I think that speaks to the, the historicness of that day. I personally had uh, an emotional moment about it because looking out of the car, I felt, wow, it's actually going to happen. We're actually making a film and we've been following the, the David Goliath story and it looks like our guy is winning. And oh, 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 although it was something that most people had been hoping for, that the opposition would be, be, be in power, I think seeing that crowd and feeling that energy on that stadium that day convinced me that, that this was in the bag. At the same day, in a different part of town, Emerson Munangakwa had his final rally. People were bussed in from all over the country and they couldn't fill the stadium. There were many more people at Chimisa's place. And so it gave us a hint about what was coming. I started to think in terms of narrative structure and, and putting the film together that it seemed like there was going to be a happy end this time. Unfortunately, there wasn't a happy end in that the election was stolen from Chimisa. And you have a decision to make as a filmmaker, which is what note am I going to leave the audience with? We have two scenes back to back, I think. Chamisa's final interview with you where he talks about hope and we don't end there. We have one more scene. Can you talk about how you decided to end on the president's swearing in ceremony? Yes, the rhetorical twist to the hope, 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 because the, in the opening scene of the film, one of Chamisa's first sound bites is that we want change, change, change. And then two hours later, in terms of movie time, there was no change. And now we have is hope, hope, hope. So for me, there was a rhetorical, interesting flip in those use of words from Chemisa. And then we have the scene with the, you know, of Monangakwa at the end. And it wasn't the way that anybody wanted this movie to end. Certainly not the, the Zimbabweans who were hoping for change. I think I'm still doubting this, if this was the right choice in a way. If you had swapped the two scenes, so you would have ended on a state of hope. I think it would have been creating a false sense of a reality that was not there. I tried to represent the, the emotional feeling that most Zimbabweans sat with at that time, and that was that the election was stolen and Munangagwa took the, the longest straw. And there was a lot of anger in terms of that betrayal. Although there's a tendency, I think, in filmmaking that you leave the audience with a bit of hope or on a positive note or give them some sort of incentivement to think that this is not just all hopeless and, and back to scratch. I felt that would not have been in alignment with the emotion that was there on the ground in Zimbabwe when this happened. If I had swapped those scenes, if that's what you're thinking, I think I would have created a, a false reality. And maybe I, I felt I would betray what happened in real life at the expense of leaving the audience with a feeling that was more digestible with the evening coffee, if it makes sense. Anger is not a nice feeling to leave a cinema or leave the screen with, but this is how I saw the situation. I felt it was incredibly honest, and I think it's one of the reasons why the film has lingered with me for so long and will continue to resonate through future elections, whether they're in Zimbabwe, the United States, we're all nervous about, or anywhere else. So congratulations, Camilla, and thank you so much for this hard-earned and incredibly well-made and important historical record. Thanks, guys. Is there anyone that you wanted to thank specifically for contributing to the film? 
this is actually a really nice opportunity for me to do so because as you may have seen in the credits of, of President, our film, there's a large amount of anonymous people on the ground in Zimbabwe, even translators working for us here in Copenhagen that we, for security reasons, could not credit with their full name uh, as long as the current regime is in place in Zimbabwe. I, I have the privilege of when you can say shit hits the fan, I can take my European uh, passport and jump on the next plane. So I would like to thank all the anonymous people who were part of our filmmaking process. and. I hope that one day the situation will be politically different in Zimbabwe in a way that we can rewrite our credits and put everyone back by their full name. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you've seen in the past or even more recently that you don't think it's the attention it should? You know, I do. I really do. <laughs> it's an American film by Frederick Weissman made in 1983. It's called The Store. And, and when you talk Weissman, everybody knows Tilka Foley's welfare, his big classics, but very few people, I think, at least in, in my community, knows about The Store. It's filmed in the Neiman Marcus uh, shopping center in Dallas. I don't know if it was Weissman's intention, but for me, at least today, a couple of decades later, it's the most beautiful capitalist critique I ever saw. And there's so much sociological relevance for generations to come.